0: Good, uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of the Political Tipster. Uh, so we've already touched upon uh, Northern Ireland and Wales, and now we turn our attention to another UK country in uh, Scotland, who uh, also have their local elections coming up in May. Uh, and I'm happy to uh, have uh, one of our previous guests uh, back on who gave us a very great insight into the world of Scottish politics. Um, Probably, yeah, exactly a year ago today. So uh, welcome back to the show, uh, Cameron.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on, appreciate it.
0: And for those who didn't listen to the third podcast, which they they greatly missed out on, uh, could you just give a little introduction to yourself and your political history?
1: Yeah, that's uh, well-do. Um, I I have been out for a couple of years now, but um, I, in my previous uh, line of work, was a, a part of the strategy team for the Conservative Unionist Party, working uh, for them just post-referendum periods, about like 2017, 2018, and then afterwards uh, did a bit of, um, what I think, in best describes was slandering for some minor parties, <laughs> which is like, how we met. So that's... Uh, um, but yeah, and now i um just back to the life of being a, a just a humble shopkeeper as uh, my current life. so,
0: and the interest in returning to the,
1: um, the wild, wild west at, of politics. not at this not at this time. I have uh, had i I've done some um help for people that I know that are standing, uh, they're friends of mine. so I'm because of I'm I'm now in a situation where I have people that I've known from school that are now standing for elections (laughs) who are below me now. So I've been helping them out in the best way I can and just uh, giving them advice and pointers here and there. I had one particular university friend uh, get in touch with me, reminding me that I, about seven years ago, said I'd help them on the first campaign. Uh, and, okay. which would be fine except the fact that they were standing for the SNP against one of my friends um, so <laughs> I, I, I did the bare minimum I can get away with I just took a couple of the leaflets and slid it in at the same time I said "Look, I helped that's all I can do now and um, but it's, you know, in good humour and I wish him best but that's so, uh, I'm, I'm not going to name him because I think even on a podcast I'd have to name all the candidates in his ward and I can't be bothered doing that so it's <laughs> of course but yeah I've, yeah. so I've been doing that for a while so just doing odd bits helping people I know um, but So far, not particularly interested in a proper return yet. Okay. I'm I'm enjoying being on the sidelines. I'm enjoying watching this from afar and taking a bit more of a wider view of things.
0: Hmm. Well, we shall wait and see for the the big return anyway. (laughs) Okay, so um, just a reminder of what we're sort of playing with this year. So I believe it's the similar situation in Wales whereby... Rather than having a third of each council council voted each year, uh, it's just every council is up for election every five years. Is that right? Uh,
1: yes. So all of the, uh, fort, all of the 30, how the wards in my head? Uh, Three, 355 wards are up for election to the 32 councils, bar uh, six. So we already have some councils elected from uncontested wards. So we already have about twenty councils that have been elected uh, through just awards not having enough people standing, um, which has led to some absolute, um, it's led to some shocks like we didn't expect a Lib Dem to get elected like, in for example, um, and we have a few things like that. But substantially, all of our councils are elected at the same time in one big election, um, which it, frankly makes far more sense. I don't get why England does far, far, third, third by thirds, but uh, that's a different podcast for a different day. Um, So we're doing them all through there, and I'm assuming your next question is going to be about the voting system and how we do things ever so slightly differently up here as well. Uh,
0: Exactly that, because until I started researching this, uh, I always presumed it was first past the post, so what what have you got for us?
1: Uh, We use the single transferable vote for councils. Uh, So we used first past the post up until 2002, um, where we, as part of the uh, Labour Lib Dem administration, um, they agreed to change the voting system for councils to STV. Um, so obviously, I'm, to do the quick disclaimer to your listeners, it just means that rather than ticking a box next to candidate you want, you rank by order of preference, so you do one, two, three, and however many you want to do down the ballot. Um, through there. It's also why we do our elections offsets. So the first election we did under that system was in 2007, and about 3% of all ballots were spoiled because we did it on the same day as the Scottish Parliament elections. And That's... using two different voting systems with three different ballots <laughs> um, and telling people and trying to do it on the one-er, uh, it turns out it was not a great idea to so <laughs> offset it. So it's now one year uh, The council election now one year behind to try and make it a little bit easier for everyone. Yeah, um, yeah it,
0: it's always... Confuse me, um, everything about Scottish politics. I remember last year trying to follow the um, the Holyrood elections, and I just really wasn't understanding why, when the SNP were winning seats on the first past the post, they were then losing seats, uh, in the list. It, it was it was confusing me, but uh, in the if end, I, I,
1: like,
0: not, Sorry, like, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just saw S&P miss out on majority by one, and I thought, okay, job done, that's it. Don't understand the rest, but we'll we'll take it. Yeah,
1: yeah it's one of those things where I, I I think part of the issue up here is the fact that we use three different systems. So we obviously use first passables for Westminster, we use additional members for the Scottish Parliament, and we use mm. STV for councils. If we just use the one across the board, I think people would get used to that. So. Uh, when you're doing lectures in Northern Ireland, explaining that it's just STV across the board, they are bar for Westminster, is quite simple because people are just used to that as how things work. So you just sort of develop, okay, this is how I do that. I transfer and I do this and that's fine. But because they're entirely different systems up here, voters do think differently and um, they do, there is still a bit of misunderstanding about it. So um, we, we still have a situation in Scotland where the last election, I believe it was something like a quarter of all ballots were not transferred. So people just voted for one candidate and they didn't vote beyond that which is, um, we're on your right to do that, but it isn't really using the system as it's intended to be used. And that has got better in the last few years, but there is still a few strategy holdouts that I may get onto later on because they could play a dynamic in a lot of seats, potentially.
0: And uh, so in Northern Ireland, we see that uh, most people will just list uh, the national parties in order or the unionist parties in order. Due to the fact there are more unionist than nationalist parties in Scotland, who has an advantage with this voting system or is there an advantage with it? I, I,
1: I would say very nominally, um, prior to this year, I would have said there was a slight normal advantage to particularly Labour under the system. And the reason for that was that Labour would get some level of transferring across nationalism and unionism. So um, you will still get, um, particularly in the central belt, you will still get voters that will vote SNP first and then Labour second. And you'll still get a lot of those sort of old school Labour voters that do that. Um, and you would get Conservative voters which will, Conservative voters that when they do transfer, because Conservatives are, of the major parties, the ones that most likely to not transfer. Um, it was something like 40% of Conservative voters didn't transfer the last election. Sure. But um, of the ones that do, um, they will generally go down the unionist line and they will just go to Labour first as the default setting if the oh, okay. Dems aren't in a competent position there. However, I would say now, one of the things which is quite interesting about um, the strategies from all the parties is that uh, the s are trying to do a consolidation plan. So they, uh, from 2012 and 2017, massively expanded their candidate selection. And this year they've dropped back a bit. They've, uh, I think, it's selected about fifty. Yeah, it's about seventy less candidates than he did last time around, uh-huh. and that's led to some quite interesting strategy calls where you're looking at um, nominations uh, ballots and going, okay, why have you only picked two here? Like, you're, there's three here definitely. There's at least space for that. Um, so that may give them an element of consolidation because it means, in principle. They should have more SNP transfers to give out to other parties. So that might the party that might be really grateful for that is the Greens. Mm, uh, mm. The Greens might be really grateful for that this time round, and that may possibly help them get a breakthrough in a few seats and a few councils they've been looking for. Um, because outside Glasgow, and Emory, I think the Greens only have three councillors, and oh, they're wow. definitely they're definitely going to get better than that this time. Oh around.
0: yeah and just to remind ourselves a bit of what happened last time so uh, the SNP remained the largest party with about 32% of first preference votes yeah uh, they replaced labor as the largest parties in glasgow and edinburgh the first yeah. time they've they've controlled the the country's two largest cities uh, the tories had their best result ever yeah. in scotland i think yeah um but there was also a record number of seats won for independents um, and I think I do believe that there's not a single council in mainland uh, Scotland which has uh, a majority for a party. It's no overall control in in every council. Yeah, um,
1: Dundee was briefly National's majority after a by election, but that changed after one of their councillors affected to Alba. So um, ah. that um, that's the one that of I, I'll get to when we're doing uh, when we eventually get to running through. Uh, the councils that I, I will come back. I will come back to Dundee because that's a quite interesting balance of play there. Okay.
0: Uh, so, could you just tell me what are the main issues going into this election? What are parties campaigning upon mostly?
1: Okay. Um, it obviously depends on where you live, is quite because local elections, by definition, are both local and national, especially in Scotland in the way that our politics is ran um there is definitely a a want to focus on national issues especially for the uh, especially for the SMP and the Tor- and the Conservative Party the SMP are trying to run this election as um, a sort of proxy referendum of Boris Johnson which is uh, most of the time a pretty successful thing to do up here uh, and the Tories <laughs> are trying to run this as a um, um are trying to run this as the um, trying to make themselves the big opposition to the SNP. So this is the first time the Conservatives are standing in every single mainland ward. something that not even the SNP are doing this time around, uh, is um, they're making a quite large effort to um, try and present themselves as the opposition to the SNP. Uh, Labour are trying to run more of a local issues campaign, even though that... All the leaflets are talking about wanting to do a windfall tax and energy companies, which I think is maybe slightly beyond the competence of local mm. councils in Scotland, but <laughs> then trying to get some level of branding um, and uniformity across the country, which is probably best for them. Um, and the Lib Dems and Greens are doing very focused uh, campaigning, um, especially they um, are doing very focused campaigning. Uh, especially in places where either they're really trying to defend or, in the case of the Greens, really trying to break out, uh, particularly in West Lovie, where uh, the Greens are quite confident they can get a full group. Um, So there's going to be... It's it's a mix of standard local issues, uh, things like your potholes, your bin collection, uh, things like street lighting up, we've done council funding, which has been a big problem here in the last few years, um, sliced in with some national issues as well. so, it really is just a standard kind of election. It's actually been quite dull. There's not been like a major breakout yet of an issue which no one was really expecting mm. to come up.
0: And uh, have issues such as uh, Partygate come into it, or is that really a Westminster bubble uh, issue?
1: I, I would say um, the S&P are trying to make it, the SP and Labour are definitely trying to make it something that sticks because. Um, the, the S&P have a symbiotic relationship with the Conservative Party. We can be kind of honest about this: that they both feed off each other, they both need each other up here to uh, make each other's terrible spots and produce <laughs> their own turnout. And Labour are trying to use that as a way of regaining former Labour voters that went to the Conservatives in the last few years. Um essentially showing, look, they were always like this, they've never changed, they're always and they're trying to build themselves up that way. Uh it's It's very much in that sort of uh, vein. So it probably is having an impact. Um, I think that if I was to guess, I would say people who are already um, disinclined against voting for the Conservatives in this election probably would not be too affected by that. And those that were wanting to do it probably wouldn't be affected either. So it's going to be probably more at the margins or more just hardening positions people already have.
0: And something that's been debated and talks about quite a lot, is possible introduction of a national care service. I believe the SNP and Labour are both in favour, whereas the Tories are, are not so. Um, Has yeah. that been something that's been floated around this election? Uh,
1: it is solely in the sense that it feeds into a wider question about council funding. So um, the Conservatives locally, when they're talking about the care system, uh, are generally trying to position it not so much as being against the concept, but rather against how are you funding this? Uh, so um local councils in Scotland have faced about 14, 15 years now of consecutive budget cuts. So um they have money has been passed out, um the money that they receive from uh, the Scottish Government has been consistently lowered to the point where. There is, especially in that a couple of councils in Scotland that this carries on for the next five years, which it looks like, based on Scottish government predictions, it might. Um, there's one or two councils that are kind of floating the idea that they might file for bankruptcy. Wow. Because their obligations are going to be, the obligations from central government will be higher than the money they can physically raise in, uh, the money they can physically get in <coughs> any capacity. And it's starting to get to that position now where, um, Labour are supportive but want to say how you fund it. Um, the Tories are trying to be opposed to it because they want to um, try and make it about funding issue with the SNP. Uh, the SNP aren't really wanting to talk about it. They are um, Their materials are trying to run on the records because they now have records in a lot of councils that they didn't have previously, and they're trying to run on those and they're trying to cover themselves that way. Um, but it's an issue that hasn't really been playing up uh, yet on the doorsteps or in any of the major campaigns yet.
0: And uh, speaking of funding, so in two thousand and seven, the SP famously pledged to scrap council tax. Um, but uh, I think it was last year uh, they decided to allow uh, councils more flexibility to raise or to to control their own council tax rate. could you just touch upon that
1: uh, for us? Yeah, yeah. So um, the in 2007 uh, the SP, one of the main um, pledges the sp went to that election uh, a lot of people focused on the um, on the replacement of council tax but one of the other big ones they ran with was they would freeze the council tax so they would um freeze the council tax at a national level and not allow the uh, not all councils to raise that um in any way and for a few years that was okay but they kept that until 2000 and i believe 2017 they kept that till There was a decade where council tax was simply not allowed to rise. And while that isn't a massive uh, money generator for councils, it only generates about 10% of their income. Um, They also did this at the same time as freezing central funding as well. Freezing Ah. or reducing central funding. So they did these two things together. And for a while, that was okay because Scottish councils, for um, structural reasons, had larger surpluses than councils in the rest of the country. Uh, which is mostly a legacy of when we had two tier local government and that was abolished. Um, so, councils were able to use the reserves uh, to try and cover the basis. And around 2018, that was just no longer possible. And there was an immediate notice in a lot of places of, okay, things have changed quite radically when people were noticing that bin collection is going to, uh, in places like Stirling, for example, uh, bin collection is now monthly because there's no other way of structuring it otherwise. Free weekly is now quite common in most rural councils. and mm. You have uh, major changes being made to the way the public services are functioning and working here. Um, and that was noticed almost overnight. And as a result, um, there was a pressure for them to do something, and the SNP decided that they were going to allow councils to raise council tax wherever they liked, rather than capping it, which is the usual uh, procedure they have. But they did that right into an election year. So obviously, basically no one's took them up on it because you're not going to go into election saying, yeah, we doubled your council tax because only we can function. And especially into the cost of living crisis and everything else, that's mm. it, it's very much like, we will give you enough rope to hang yourself with. Um, which um, <laughs> is enough to say we've done something, but no one's going to take you up on it. And it's it's unfortunate because the councils here are definitely needing funding. It is a, a the situation is not sustainable in most parts of the country anymore. And it's very much approaching its final limits. And so I, I don't suspect that the s are getting hammered too much for it on uh, on the doorstep, but funding is something they're definitely getting hit with and they're getting hit with it pretty hard.
0: And just a statistic just to show how that's impacted. So uh, day-to-day spending increased by only around £15 per person 2020 to 2021, which is about 0.7% higher per person. However, in the same year, the average council tax bill has risen 4.5%. So yeah. when we're facing this crisis of the, the cost of living, this, this really can have uh, quite the impact on the, the average Scot. Yeah. And uh, moving from the S&P to Tories. So we, we mentioned before that the Tories had their best election in 2017. Um, by... If we look at national polling, the sort of support for the Tories is, is starting to falter. Uh, we've had party gate, We've had uh, very questionable decisions during the pandemic.
1: Are the Tories on the defence this election, would you say? Uh, I would say they're definitely in a defensive position, uh, partially just because it's really... I, I, I do need to uh, highlight just how amazingly well he did in 2017. So... Um, the way that SCV works, uh, I'm not sure whether in your Northern round episode someone talked about this, but um, STV as an electoral system uh, requires you to essentially pick the perfect number of candidates. Otherwise, you'll get punished either for over-selection or under-selection. Um, the Conservative Party should have elected 25 more councillors than they did in 2017 because they simply didn't select enough candidates, particularly in Aberdeenshire and Murray, uh, where they did about nine points better in the polls than they thought they were going to do locally. Um, There were also, um, there was a couple of, there was a four, I think it was, there was a Conservative councillor got elected in, I think it was Inverness, who was a paper candidate, who was just promised, yeah, you will not get elected, we have no chance here, who got elected and didn't (laughs) take a seat up afterwards, because he just was not in a position to take uh, take the job, he just didn't sign the papers. Um, So, like, they did amazingly well in 2017, Didn't, didn't help me, but they did do amazingly well in 2017, and... There's um, examples of this in places which are nearly unthinkable. In North Lanarkshire, for example, the, uh, the Conservatives have 10 councillors. In Glasgow, we have eight. It's like it, it is an unthinkable result that they have uh, in terms of many parts of the country. So they're naturally going to be quite a defensive position because you're going to want to consolidate as much of that as possible, especially since large parts of their, um, the numbers they elected were elected in quite late counts. Uh, so Um, I can't remember the exact number, but I believe it's somewhere around 75, 80, councillors for the Conservatives were elected under quota, uh, which means, so in order, under SCV, you have to get, um, in a four-member, you have to get 20% of the vote to get over the line to be elected. Um, The other way to get elected is if you're just the last person standing. And Hmm. about 80 of them were elected just because they were the last ones left on the ballot, um, which is not a stable (laughs) position to find yourselves in. You want to be able to secure your vote as best as possible. So they will be naturally in quite a defensive position anyway, even without everything's happening nationally. The problem they've got nationally is that, um, first of all, Boris Johnson is objectively not popular in Scotland. He is uh, regarded consistently in polling um, as uh, in opinion, uh, per- approval ratings in like the minus 70s. Uh, which is Johnson impre- Johnson Scotland has a negative approval rating among Conservative voters. Which is like he is in to not denigrate in much as way as possible. He's almost an embodiment of everything which Scottish Conservatives kind of have been fighting against for the last ten years yeah. uh, of trying to um, position themselves. We're not like them, and then literal that turns up, and you go, oh, okay. And, so they've been uh, spending,
0: yeah, just just to make things worse as well. Um, earlier this year, I think uh, Douglas Ross, the, yeah. the leader of the Scottish Tories, was calling on uh, Boris Johnson to resign if he had yes. misled Parliament. And yeah. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's supposed to be the the Unionist, uh, he was he was mocking Douglas Ross, like uh, saying some basically saying he was a minor character in the party. minor figure in a
1: lightweight, yes, which uh, the Nationalists did snap on at every possible opportunity ever since. Uh, The irony of of that decision, though, is that um, Douglas Ross had the support of the entire Scottish Conservative Party in doing that. In Holyrood, in the Council Association, he had pretty much unanimous support up here. There was only, uh, the only people who didn't come out in favour of it were the Scottish Conservative MPs in Westminster. Everyone else up here was in favour of that call because uh, they kind of telegraphed it for months. Um, So he'd kind of put himself in a position where he had no choice but to then say yeah, he has resigned and then put a letter in and has now backtracked on that, claiming (laughs) Ukraine is the cause of um, Ukraine means it's not a time to remove a leader, although I distinctly remember a certain Norway debate in the 1940s that would disprove that, but um, it's like a more grave situation, but um, that's the position they find themselves in. Uh, So they're naturally going to be quite defensive positions just because they're defending a lot of places they are not previously defending. Uh, and they're trying to run uh, very localized campaigns as a result. so um, mm-hmm. nationally they're running a lot of general um, red meat to the uh, to the base of the party to try and get uh, p voters out uh, to try and get the conservative voters out by just running p um, just running against the S p, which is quite easy for them to do. but on the ground, they are running incredibly localised campaigns. And uh, to be fair to, especially a lot of the at-risk ones, I would say in the central belt, they're running, by all accounts, really good campaigns. So um, they they will probably um, lose seats overall. Uh, whether they lose enough seats for Labour to overtake them is really the main question of this election of whether Labour can regain second place in uh, the councils and try and use that to build up themselves for a fight back again in Scotland but um, that's really the story going into the election is whether the Conservatives can hold on in a lot of the central belt which used to be strongly Labour heartlands.
0: And just one final point on the Tories, uh, Ruth Davidson, how crucial has her loss been to the party in Scotland because 2017 local elections, best result, uh, 2017 general election, another incredible result. Since then, they've been faltering. How how crucial has a loss been to to the Scottish Conservative?
1: It's been um, it's, it's affected them in two ways. Uh, firstly, just in simple name recognition, um, Ruth Davidson had by far the highest name ID of any Conservative in the country by some distance. So if you're um, replacing somebody that people have heard of with someone that people haven't heard of you're having to almost restart from scratch in explaining who this person is, the electorate, mm-hmm. and you're having to tell a story and build a narrative about them. So if you're doing that, um, that sets you back quite a distance, especially if you... Um, so Duncan Ross isn't the first leader they've had since Ruth uh, Davidson. They had Jackson Cargill up here, who is an MSP in East Renfrewshire, um, who stood for a couple of years. So there was, by all accounts, an old-school Scottish Conservative leader, quite nice, quite liked, generally speaking, but no one would vote for them. Um, the uh, the analogy that I best used uh, I heard the best described him was he was he was a bit like that uncle that you'd like seeing around Christmas you won't want to be around him longer than that. <laughs> but, well, we'll be around for the day, but beyond I got uh, you're you're a bit grinding um, beyond there. So they, they get fr- uh, so then they settle on Douglas Ross kind of by proxy afterwards um, through there. So that's that's the first issue. The second one is that she definitely did reach out to. Voters who didn't previously think of the Conservatives as a viable option because she, as much as a trope it is to say, did break a lot of stereotypes of what it was to be a Conservative in Scotland. And that is really important up here because you've got generation, genuinely, you've got um, multiple generations of places in this country which have never seen Conservative elected officials or mm. never seen them in large enough numbers. so. If there are ideas that build up in your head about what a Conservative official politician looks like, and if you see someone breaking all of those down, it makes you think, okay, I can see myself doing that. It lowers the barrier to you putting a vote for that party. So it's a challenge for those reasons alone. it's definitely a, a challenge for you there. 2017 was the high watermark for the Conservatives in Scotland. Uh, it was also probably their ceiling, realistically, under the Riddick mm. strategy as well, because if you're running just on a unionist new vote, there is a finite number of those voters you can get because of strong ideological traditions that exist in British politics. Um, you're not going to get into diehard socialists who's been voting uh, for the Labour Party for over a century to be able to turn all that to vote for the Tories. Well, the same for the liberal tradition in this country as well. It's uh, you're going to have natural ceilings. Um, so whether they just hit the ceiling and they're now settling into about 19 20 percent, which is what their floor is now, which is still significantly better than they 10 years ago, um, is a different matter. But they're definitely missing having someone with her name ID at the moment.
0: And uh, so, the last time we spoke, uh, the SP were short of one of a majority, but with the greens who are also pro a uh, second referendum uh, they had the overall and a nationalist majority in their parliament yeah um what has happened in the last year in terms of a second referendum have we moved forward at all what 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 is what's happened since then
1: uh... Okay, so from the polling, there's been ostensibly no movement, uh, so it appears in the last 12 months that uh, the, um, on the direct question, I believe it's uh, up by two points compared to what, where it was last year, but that's ostensibly the only real movement, it's all within March of the Renner. it's all about where it was previously. Uh, so, in terms of public mood, I don't think much has changed in terms of the mm. constitutional questions here. Uh, in terms of the um, politics of it, um, the SNP are um, trying to insist at the moment that there will be a referendum next year, which is roundly being laughed at even by SNP supporters. Um, mostly because they've kind of boxed themselves into the corner of we want a legal referendum. Oh, we've been told we can't have one. We'll just do it anyway, which they're not going to do. So, it's. Um, there is a challenge for that reason, um, in the fact that they are, there does appear to be a pattern where the um, yes, SP will start talking about independence just before an election, and they will afterwards just kind of leave it for a few months and then just kick the can down the road, which is sort of where we believe they are right now. I would suspect there will not be a referendum in this parliament, uh, that uh, Scottish parliament, so the earliest to think about it would be 2026, and that depends on other factors down south. Uh, whether that would be in itself viable but as it stands nothing's really changing which is why uh, most of the parties up here aren't really talking about it where possible they're trying to actively move on to other issues at the moment
0: but will we see a, a section 30 request do you think in this parliament
1: there, there there may be a section 30 request at some point in the parliament probably it's going to happen in the next few months and the response will be we've seen it we'll get back to you and there won't be a phone response like there was last time it's uh that's what I suspect will end up happening, is it will just be a, a... request will be sent in because they have the votes for it. They'll have the debate in there to say they've done something and then nothing will happen afterwards and everyone gets what they want out of it. Um, but that's... Unfortunately, that's politics sometimes, though. Sometimes you've got to uh, put a narrative into your voter base to make them think you're doing something. And that's unfortunately what they're doing at the moment. But that's that's the nature of the game you play. It's You have to do it sometimes.
0: And... Uh... If uh, if a section thirty were to be rejected by Westminster, how does the Scottish public react normally? Do they see this? Uh, do people become more sympathetic towards the nationalist cause, uh, thinking mm. uh, Westminster is blocking our our right to to vote on this? Or
1: it, it depends how you phrase the question. As the simple answer, so what happened the last time the uh, government uh, the scottish government sent section 30 order uh, to westminster or section 30 request to westminster was it wasn't rejected it was just sort of left red so it was never formally rejected we just like they got the letter they read it and then they just left it and then really res- and then respond <laughs> to it because they don't have to respond because under the legislation they don't have to respond okay they just have to they don't have to respond to it so that's what they did last time is they just ignored it uh so As a result, uh, there wasn't the formal, they've rejected our right to do it. They've just like went, it's uh, uh, okay. So it it doesn't get the same response. I suspect an actual rejection, if there was a formal letter and a notice of we are saying no to this, probably might, it might galvanize an extra couple of percent of the electorate. But I think at the moment, the positions are right now pretty much set where they are. So you're going to get... Maybe some tugging on the margin, some undecideds, maybe going back to yes when they were undecideds before. But that's very much what you're seeing right now. Uh, the changes in the, in, in the constitutional question polling aren't really from people defecting from no to yes, but rather just moving from the camps that into undecided or don't know because mm. you don't really, because nothing's really happening on that right now. And um, once you start seeing movement again, you'll probably see those people go back into their camps. But uh, So I suspect probably not much.
0: Uh, so the last time we had the Scottish independence referendum, uh, the UK government didn't directly accept Section 30. They opened negotiations, but uh, arguably the SNP got the, the better end of the deal with the, the question. Uh, I think the UK government, the only concession they got was that there was a limit to when the referendum uh, could be held. Could the Could we have a situation possibly where... Section 30, again, is asked, uh, but this time the UK government tries to push uh, for more concessions because one thing that's really interested me is how much of a difference the wording of the question can make because if we take the last referendum, uh, should Scotland be an independent country, that tends to have more a higher vote in favour of the nationalist side than if we were to have another remain-leave question. So when you ask yeah. the Scots, um, would you like to remain or leave within the UK? The national support drops down to to the low 40s. Um so that there is quite a, a big a big difference. So could we ever see a situation like that where Section 30 is requested and the UK government tries to push more in its favor? The, a second referendum, more, more to value. Uh, uh,
1: theoretically, uh, it's, um, it, there is an argument uh, from, if you're solely thinking of um, the constitutional politics up here from just a, a strategy perspective, there is an argument for the, cons- uh, for the Conservative Party uh, at Westminster at the moment to try and drive a deliberately hard bargain uh, to essentially force the SNP away from the table. And there is an argument that that may be worthwhile trying to do. Um, the counter I would say to that is that while there is while there is definitely a case to be made that the UK government, if it was to enter negotiations rather than accept the Section 30 request, would probably take a slightly harder line on a lot of things like the question, for example, like the franchise, like... Um, like campaigning rules, like um, budget, um, like the financing limits, because uh, the Scottish government got to set the financing limits in the last referendum, mm. um, and things like they may take a slightly more active view in that. Uh, I still don't believe that's something that would be likely within the current setup, um, because the Conservatives uh, in Westminster have set uh, currently have set a quite large part of their identity as being we are going to stop this in every way, shape, or form. So if you open the door slightly even if it's just to slam it back in their face it still doesn't look good for you to do that so it might possibly be an option for a new government to pursue but with the current government that is in place I suspect that would be too much of a risk for them to take and they probably would just um, do what they did last time to just ignore the request.
0: And something which I find quite difficult when I follow Scottish politics is that you seem to be stuck in this perpetual cycle whereby the SMP is the largest party, but often doesn't have the majority, the independence question dominates quite a lot of politics and to the detriment of other areas of, of policy. Is there a way, do, do you think a second referendum would be the only way to put this question to bed or are there alternatives uh, to try and move away from the constitutional question and start focusing more on education, healthcare, etc.
1: Um there in principle there probably is. So Labour have spent uh since Aaron became leader of the Labour Party, uh they've tried to make a concerted effort to do exactly that, to uh, avoid talking about the constitution where possible and instead talk about things like education, healthcare, transport, and talk about those sorts of bread and butter, uh, bread and butter issues. Uh, thinking that there is a gap for them to do that while um, to slip in the middle while the SNP and uh, the Conservative Party argue with the Constitution. And that is paying some dividends for them in terms of the fact they're now the second party in pretty much all consistent opinion polling. Uh, the fact that they are starting to be a bit more confident in there. Uh, you can start to see the way they're campaigning, the sort of places they're now campaigning for this election, they're being a bit more confident now. Um, and you're starting to see that go through. So if, if you were to find yourself in a situation where Labour were once again the second party in Scotland, I think you would probably start to see a move naturally away from the constitution being the one issue in the country just because the SNP would have to fight on their left rather than on the constitution. Mm. So they would have to fight because they'd have to fight the Labour Party on the sort of Labour, um, on essentially left-wing issues, on the cent- on the central left. They would have to start talking to those issues far more because um if they were to start doing the constitution, they would potentially risk alienating some of their more soft nationalist voters who originally moved from Labour, who view vote for the SNP at Scotland under a competency matter, um, uh, and may be influenced to move towards Labour, especially if they think they have a competent leader, which they at least compared to the last few years, definitely have again in Scotland.
0: So would you say that they're trying to replicate the strategy of Someone like Alliance in Northern Ireland, which takes a more neutral stance on the constitutional question and who arguably have have been doing quite well. I think they're projected to win uh, more seats this election, this coming election. Uh,
1: I think that's, uh, in the case of Labour, that's probably a slight oversimplification. Um, They are... I would say they're more trying to emulate what Welsh Labour are doing and the fact that they're trying to be this good bread and butter voice, which is able to be just a bit, which is a little bit nationalistic, but it's still very much bread and butter. And that's probably what they're trying to emulate because that for Labour is the successful model of evolution. It is looking at Wales and seeing what they've done there and went, okay, we're going to try and copy that strategy as best we can. In terms of there being space for an alliance-style party in Scotland, um, I would probably say yes, but with nine or 10 different asterisks. Um, of primarily, um, the, the thing that makes alliance work in uh, Northern Ireland is, well, barring the obvious historical connotation of the Troubles and everything else, one of the reasons why that works for them is that there is, because they've set themselves right in the middle of this large structural divide in society, and you're able to vaguely flip between what either or depending on what's convenient to you at the time. In Scotland, while we've been like this for over a decade, di- for most of my my entire adult life at this point, it's still not as hard set. You still don't have like segregated communities yet. You don't have um, groups that refuse to engage one another because of the constitutional question, etc. So it's harder to make that move of being directly in the centre. I think there is probably space for it, um, and if Liberal Democrats were um maybe in a slightly better electoral position they could start trying to make that move and start trying to be a bit more neutral on the constitutional question which more reflects the membership of their party um i remember uh reading something about a quarter of, of Lib uh members in scotland are in favor of independence and that okay. was from a few years back i'm not sure if that's changed in the last few years but that was definitely the case around 2017 2018 um so there is space for them to potentially make that position, but because of the way that the elections have went for them the last few years, they are limited to fighting a very small number of election campaigns. Am I too loud? Okay. Um, sorry, my heart walked in there, so I just have to check on that. Um the no Yeah, that's uh, one. Um, but yeah, so... Oh, so sorry, you are sorry. No, no, sorry, you go. I was, I was trying to just make a clean edit there, but that's uh, and so, but because of the way that uh, the liberal democrats have done in elections in the last few years, uh, they are very much consolidated into very small pockets of the country. So they're having to, uh, and they're effectively in those areas just on an ultra unionist message. So uh, that's limiting their ability ah. to do that. Um, so if they were doing a bit better across the country, they might be able to make that move. Otherwise, you would probably now at this point I'd say needs potentially a new party and then you have the question of okay if you have a new party and you get people involved in it they're going to have constitutional positions and it's going to be it's going to be quite easy to paint it as oh you're just a front for this or a front for this and it's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge and that's uh, unfortunate because there is probably the space for it if it gets its act together mm. and if you were to get the people along don't oh worry um and you get them together it probably has space but it's then just trying to get enough people to put an X next to that box and that's the challenge for all political parties in a political system.
0: And we mentioned before the, the huge unpopularity of Boris Johnson in, in Scotland, do you think as long as the Conservative Party is in charge at Westminster, uh, independence is something rather ine- inevitable whether it be long term uh,
1: in Scotland? Uh, I wouldn't say inevitable because there are very few things in politics that are truly inevitable Um, it it definitely becomes slightly more of a challenge in Scotland for no other reason than you've got this uh, direct correlation between uh, something that we don't like uh, something that we don't like and something that's happening and because that's in front of you it may galvanize a few people on the line but I don't necessarily think it's inevitable more that there needs to be, uh, Why I always tell people uh, down south uh, to try and explain why Scotland's the way it is now, is that if, for the union to work long term, there does need to be some form of change to the union as it's currently structured, because for better or worse, there is a significant proportion of people in this country and in, especially in the northern part of the country, that do feel that the union does not work in any way, shape or form mm-hmm. for them, like, and the in the twenty fourteen referendum, the fact that nineteen twenty Scots voted to leave the United Kingdom should be a wake up call that something isn't right there. Even if you even if you still win, you've still got to acknowledge that that is a mm-hmm. large group, and you've got to do something to address that. Um, and it's more about probably making those changes, um, but doing that in a way that doesn't preference or prioritise one part of um, that doesn't prioritise one part. So. um Probably looking towards some greater form of localism might be an inevitability, looking towards um, making the kind of changes to the union that may make Westminster just a little bit less powerful compared to the rest of the, uh, the uh, constituent nations of the union might be a necessary move to make. But um, change is inevitable because change is inevitable in life, but I don't necessarily think independence in of itself is inevitable as long as the current situation is sustained.
0: So what you've mentioned there is, is slightly... Uh, different tactic to uh, Boris Johnson's uh, Project Love which I've mentioned in my previous two uh, podcasts where he wants to, essentially what the EU used to do when, when they lent us uh, money uh, for for financing infrastructure and then we'd put on an, an EU flag, he wants to essentially bypass the devolved government to fund projects directly from Westminster and put a Union Jack, is is that something that would go down well with the Scottish electorate?
1: Um, depends on what it is, is a simple way to put it. So um, there are some, particularly infrastructure projects in Scotland, which are decades overdue. Um, there are, for example, um, there are roads in Scotland which are have been needing to be jeweled for about most of my parents' lifetimes that have still not been jeweled yet. And if there was to be support for that, that would probably be quite popular in those areas. There is. Uh, rail infrastructure would be quite popular here. Um, there would be um, there. There are definitely things that could be done where there would be an appreciation in some way for it. But it really just depends on. It depends on doing it in a way which is not being seen to trample on the toes of the government. So if you're doing it in if you're doing it in ways that for example in infrastructure like uh, transport infrastructure you probably would be able to get away with that and that would be popular enough and justified because that money wouldn't exist otherwise uh, wouldn't exist any other way um, But if it was for example in things like health spending or education spending or in things where there is a clear dividing line between what is devolved and what isn't that could cause some issues um, possibly especially in education especially in scotland where education for example has always been separate here or in health where the health service years has always been separate from inception. Um, where you have that dividing line, that could potentially be slightly problematic, but uh, it's really going to come down to where that would be targeted.
0: And uh, just interesting though, when you talk about the divide between uh, what Westminster can do and what uh, the devolved governments can do, why is it so, we we were talking about uh, the Welsh local elections in my previous podcast and um, we were talking about how there was 20 clear devolved uh, areas of policy which is for the devolved government and that, that seems to work well in Wales but in Scotland something which is just I see all the time is constant political football of big issues of both Westminster and the devolved uh, Holyrood Assembly, arguing about, oh, well, no, actually, that's a Westminster matter now, that's a Holyrood matter. Why is it in Scotland that there's blurred lines between who can do what, whereas in Wales, they they seem to work out pretty well who who does what? Uh,
1: Okay, Uh, it mostly comes down to the way that the acts were created. So when the act of, and this is more me sort of delving into, um, this is more me delving into memory here, so I may get slight details mixed up here. Uh, My understanding of the, uh, of the act, of the Parliament Act that created the Welsh Assembly, or the Senate, uh, what created the Senate was that it listed, it did what was meant to be done in the 70s when the Scottish Assembly was meant to be created, where Uh, it listed things that were devolved and everything else was seen to be reserved. Whereas in Scotland, when the Scotland Act of 98, I believe, uh, I believe 98 was uh, created and passed, the way that worked was it listed things that were reserved and everything that wasn't reserved was automatically devolved. So because of that, you get into some areas of things where... um, you get into some areas of things where things have either been devolved in the past but because they were listed there um would then cause issues or things where there is a genuine um change in um, technology or structure or organization that makes it that that never comes open question and part of us also down to the fact that we don't really ever challenge it a lot as well like it's and mm. one of the things that uh happened in the in the run up to the last parliamentary election here was there were two Acts that the Scottish Parliament passed, um, which the UK government took to court, and the UK government won. They were about um, the Scottish government uh, signing itself onto the uh, a couple of UN charters. I think the uh, the rights and protections of the child, and I can't remember the other one, but essentially they were signing onto um, that. Scott the Scottish government would uh, follow uh, these would follow these uh, declarations, basically. Um, and UK government sued that, arguing that was international relations, and that was out with the authority of the parliament to do, and the courts agreed. I am not against the idea that we should do that more often. I um, think some level of... It would actually be better for all parties if there was a bit more bravery about, OK, we're going mm. to do this, and if you want to sue us over it, please do. And we'll clarify this over time, we'll just kind of work to a consensus that way. Um, because what it leads to is quite a lot of cowardice and decision-making. There's a lot of, I don't want to touch this because I'm not sure if it's devolved, I'm not sure whether mm-hmm. it's legal, etc. And if there was just a bit more bravery to go, okay, we're going to do this and essentially call a bluff and go, if you want to sue us, over it, sue us, and we'll deal with it there. <laughs> might be better for all parties, because at least then you're getting some level of clarity down the line, which might be better for everyone involved. Wow. But as it stands, um, it mostly is down to the way the legislation is written and also just it's also just down to the way that scotland was brought into the union that in with the gift of hindsight if you're going to create a union between two the countries uh you don't let one keep his own legal system and his own church his own legal system his own church his own education system and his own basically entire separate civil structure for hundreds of years without touching it um and then expect you're gonna be able to integrate that in the 60s um and that's kind of what happened here is that Scotland is used to doing things differently because we always have it was part of the deal to bring us into the union and as long as that is as long as this exists that is going to be an expectation of the deal that Scotland will just be a bit different at times and um it is something that we get quite a there is a there is a weird quirk of us as a people where we do get a bit defensive about it as well so that when um there was a call a few years ago from I think I think it, there was a, it was official in the Church of England calling to merge the Church of Scotland and the Church of England. And the outrage that got up here was so, like, it, what that, uh, the outrage that caused, I think church attendance that weekend for the Church of Scotland trebled for one weekend, basically, <laughs> just, as, a, just <laughs> as an FU. Like, we had Roman Catholics turning up to Church of Scotland services just as an FU. <laughs> yeah. just, that's, that's just what happens up here. So it's, uh, it, it's part of who we are. And it's, uh, it's part of the joy to being Scottish, I guess. But it's we're always a bit different and we just need to be a bit different. Yeah. And it comes down to the nature of this country, which is uh, one of the things that makes us great, I guess.
0: And we wouldn't have it any other way, of course. Indeed so. <laughs> so let's uh, go back to the local elections then. So let's have a crunch of the numbers then. So what are the key battlegrounds for this coming election, would you say?
1: Okay, so um, there's a few different places which are quite interesting. Uh, most people will focus on the cities, so they'll focus on uh, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Dundee, and Aberdeen because it, it's quite good to focus on the high population centres. Um, they're all interesting for different reasons. Aberdeen's interesting because uh, the Labour, uh, the Labour Party's group in the council were suspended for the last four and a half years, um, so they Why? went into they went into coalition with the Conservatives. So basically, Aberdeen in the last five years was run by a, a conservative Labour, Liberal Democrat, independent administration to keep the SNP out. And uh, the Labour Party made it quite clear prior to the election, you are not allowed to do any deals with the, uh, with the Conservative Party. And Point Blank said, if you do, we will kick you out of the party. <laughs> and in Aberdeen, they did, and they kicked them all out. Um, and for the last four and a half years, they've all been independents as a group called Aberdeen Labour. And they were (laughs) planning to run, they were planning to run in this election as a group, essentially as a group, uh, on their own against the Labour Party. And Labour's readmitted them after having figured out, um, I'm assuming on the ground and having seen a lot of their own uh, sampling through canvassing, etc. That if they did that, they'd probably come out worse. (laughs) So they've essentially readmitted them all back in. (laughs) Uh, So Aberdeen's quite interesting to see. But but that has that's quite funny, but that has quite a serious downside. So if you're those councils, for example, you've not been able to do proper thing for the last five years, or like you've not had like the ability to put your name out there in the same way you mm-hmm. would if you're a party branded candidate. So um, that's going to be interesting. Whether there's a knock-on effect for there, whether the SP who've literally had five years up there running against better together, and is going to be able to galvanise some more of their 2014 support up there, which might get them a few more seats in the area. So that's that's an interesting in itself. Um, Dundee's interesting because that could be SP majority. They are they were one seat short, I believe in 20. I've got the result up here somewhere. have uh, I actually clicked on the thing, there we go. Um, 14. So yeah, they were one seat short of majority in 2017. and that was really just down to one ward in the city, which um, I think it' was the West End ward, I believe that was yeah, it was down to the West End ward. Uh, in the city. So there was one ward which cost them a majority in the council. And so they are going to try and put everything into getting that over the line this time. Uh, they probably have the votes to do it, but it's going to be, against quite a popular Liberal Democrat, and that's going to be potentially interesting to see whether they can get over the line there. So um having a single majority would be rare in STV, and that would be worthwhile. Uh Glasgow's fascinating because you've got this really weird dynamic here where um the s and have had the administration for the first time forty uh, the first time in their history, mm-hmm. and by all accounts haven't been that good here. Um, there have been a lot of issues here, uh, a lot of striking action because of a uh, labour equal pay dispute, because of an equal pay dispute which is decades old not being settled. Um, a lot of issues with uh, street collection and lo- and even issues with planning and things like that as well. So you've got a lot of small perfect storms that might chuck together. Uh, all culminating uh, when the climate conference came to Glasgow last year, of having the leader of the country, Susan, saying that all Glasgow was uh all Glasgow, need was, a, uh, all Glasgow need was a spruce up, uh, <sighs> and that causing quite a lot of acrimony, uh, ac- really across the spectrum, um, that that was causing issues through. So that's um, going to be interesting whether whether Labour can take advantage of some Conservative declines, although. Um, the Conservatives group in Glasgow, by all accounts, have been very, very good, and they are quietly confident they can actually grow their numbers in Glasgow rather than shrink them. Oh, wow. Well. Um, like
0: I just couldn't imagine um, because, that.
1: And argument, uh, it, I couldn't either entirely to the data and went, okay, there's a case they can make this year." because, uh, I should disclose, I stood in the city centre Glasgow in 2017, and I got roundly trounced, so I <laughs> had maybe a slightly different view of this on that, but Um, the problem they had going into that campaign was they had never really done any proper targeted canvassing before because they never had to under the electoral system. Mm -hmm. So uh, they went into that election completely blind. So they were spending equally in all 23 wards in Glasgow. They were spending entirely equally, which if you just from, if if you spread your resources that thinly, you're going to struggle by design. And uh, so now because they have an actual sense of where their strength is, they are just chucking everything into those and they might be able to hold on and actually gain one or two seats out of it as well. They've sued some really good candidates who okay. could be at risk there. Uh, and the Greens in Glasgow have utterly have, of the seven Greens that were elected in 2017, only two of them are re-standing. And that includes the, and that, uh, includes the group leader who left in very acrimonious circumstances. Uh, a couple of their high-profile uh, candidates last time get um, leaving in quite acrimonious circumstances. Um, and that feels like sort of the end of um, the, that felt like the end of a long standing, a, a dispute in the Green Party a, between its unionist and nationalist factions, because it was still a unionist faction within the Green Party in Scotland. That looks like that's gone now. Uh, and that was sort of the last remaining ends of it. So that's going to be interesting how that plays out. Edinburgh uh, is uh, probably going to be a direct SNP Conservative fight. And that's going to be quite fascinating to see how that works through, especially if the national picture is playing an impact there. Mm. Uh, in terms of other councils, Aberdeenshire is quite interesting uh, because we haven't talked a lot about the other and uh, the minor parties yet. Uh, the Aberdeenshire is going to be interesting because at the moment that contains a, about a fifth of the Lib Dem councillors in Scotland. Oh, wow. And in one council and they have in the last four years been hemorrhaging vote there. Uh, so every election that they've had in Aberdeenshire, they have been just hemorrhaging votes across the board, uh, and it looks like they could potentially lose half of those councillors. Which, if they're losing half of their councillors in one of their biggest, war- um, one of their largest elected groups, and they're also going to lose councillors in Renfrewshire and in Inver- Renfrewshire and Inverclyde, and in places like uh, Renfrewshire and Inverclyde where they've had long-standing councillors uh, like of 30-plus year service each. Uh, who are now standing down. They've had personal votes that are clearly going to be held on by themselves. Um, and that's going to cause some issues for them. Um, just
0: just I can step in. Uh, hasn't the Lib Dem leader uh, offered an olive branch to other unionist parties uh, for a bit of uh, tactical voting or um, electoral yeah, alliances? He,
1: he has done that uh, through their Bicot... Alex Cole Hamilton has done that. He is um, more favourable to that sort of uh, campaigning than the previous leader of the Scottish Lib Dems. Um, so he's definitely been making that play through. It's just more looking at the map and looking at where the Lib Dems are standing. I can't see off the top of my head where that would be particularly helpful for him to do. Mm. Uh, there's maybe a few pits in the Highlands where I could help him a bit. There's maybe some bits in the Borders where I might be able to hold on to someday. Uh, but that's really about it. I'm not seeing a lot of I'm not seeing a lot of places where they can gain at the moment, bar um, having like 4K councillors get elected because no one else stood, uh, which they've had in one place where they had absolutely no right to elect somebody. Um, but they've got that for there, so that's going to be quite interesting for them. So Aberdeenshire is quite interesting. It's also one of the places the Conservatives are now standing more candidates to try and fix the issue from the last election, so they are looking to make a few gains there. Mm. The SNP. Massively underperformed there, like they performed underperformed a lot of rural councils. Um, and they've had this structural one for a few years now, so they're trying to see if they can correct that. Um, you've also got um, Sterling, quite interesting as well. Uh, I'm going to highlight Stirling for no other reason than it's one of the few parts of the country where you're having a, a party other than um, one of the major parties standing a full slate of candidates there. So the Scottish Family Party are standing, uh. I think, 84 candidates across Scotland and like most minor parties are standing in uh, kind of sporadic ways there's not really any proper coordination there um, and where they're standing we're just standing places where they have members but they are standing a full slate in Stirling, and um, the reason I highlight it is it's one of the first times in my memory where the Conservatives in theory have a party that should be transfer friendly to them Uh, so because of the way the Scottish politics is when you have ostensibly Ignoring the National Union's divide, you have four parties to the left and one party to the right. It's uh, quite difficult for you to gain transfers in an election uh, from those parties. Whereas if you have a party to the right of you, you should be able to benefit in some way. So that might mm. be interesting in a transfer, uh, interesting to look at the transfer patterns to see how those work out. Uh, I also, if I'm talking, them, should probably talk about ALPA, um, Yeah. Which is a, a, an indication of how badly it's went for that party. This is the first time I think I brought them up in the whole ca- in the podcast. <laughs> Um, this is the first time. Uh, so they are standing 111 candidates uh, and bar standing in every seat in Dundee, which is a nationalist stronghold, and in all bar one of the seats in, Eastern Rem- in East Renfrewshire, um, I am not really seeing any coordination where they're standing. And that is going to be quite interesting to see how their candidates end up doing because I, they are aiming to elect two people. Like, their entire campaign is to elect two individuals, and I think they're going to be struggling to do that. And if that party isn't able to elect anyone, that's probably going to lead to some interesting questions being asked uh, after the election. Um, well, they,
0: it reminds me a bit of, uh, remember remember, the, there was this sort of cartoon which is criticising trickle-down economics whereby all the water was staying at the top, and the, someone underneath is just literally getting the drops. It feels like uh, Alaba is literally that, just like trying to get any little drop they can from the, the SNP uh, transfer votes and just hoping <laughs> they can get anything really. It's,
1: it's, it's also about them just staying in the race long enough. So, like, the, um, the, the problem that I think Alpo will have in this election is that they're probably not going to get enough first preference votes to benefit from national transfers. And that's going to be, um, especially in, especially because there isn't enough consistency in their campaigning for them to be probably able to do that. And it's, it's a shame. You don't want to see parties struggle in that way, but it's still, uh, it, it's very much a case of they are probably looking to maybe elect one or two individuals in that set. Um, a, a good barometer for that is there's a party, uh, well, there's an independent who's runs under a party. Uh, in East Ayrshire. Uh, I believe she stands in, I think it's one of the Valley constituencies, it might be the Valley. Yeah. It's one of the Valley constituencies, I'm just uh, checking that to confirm. Through. Um, but her name's Susan, uh, da, 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 Urban Valley, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's Urban Valley. Um, yeah. Urban Valley she uh, stands in, uh, and she represents the Rubbish Party, which is a, Sally a long uh, independent got elected in 2017. Uh, literally is on the ballot as a rubbish party candidate and it's, uh, it's going to be a good ballpark if she ends up beating Alipa which would be quite a Alipa literally worse than rubbish is going to be a, a headline a lot of people are going to be running with if they can um, through there so that's a good barometer to run with as well if you're looking at potentially right. a, a ballpark gauge for them I, uh, I remember
0: when uh, when Corbyn's Labour was at its lowest when the, they got trounced in the local elections uh, the BBC actually took advantage and uh, posted a full article: Labour beaten by rubbish party in. Yeah, I can't remember the ward. So yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, that. that
1: was in that ward. Yeah, yeah, there's that ward in Irvine Valley. Yes, yeah, so that's. Uh, uh, there's only five candidates standing in a four-member ward, so she's she's got a good chance this time as well, holding her seat. Um, that's but yeah, and also lastly at the Greens, the Greens are definitely on a bounce in the last few years, and they are they're expecting to be in a good position in this election. They're quietly setting their line at about 25 councillors, which would be uh, a decent gain on where they are right now. Um, decent gain on where they are right now, and they're looking to critically make breakouts in councils. So the way that the Greens' uh, councillors are structured in Scotland, uh, they've got a decent pocket in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and, that, and they've got like one councillor scattered in, in random councils across the country. And a lot of those are independents that defected to the Green Party that have strong personal votes. So okay. um, they're looking to move away from that to getting people elected on their own on their own backs. And there's a few councils where they think they've got a good chance. West lowing they think they've got a good chance in doing that. Uh, sort of demographics would make sense. Uh, Clack is one they think they could do well. And Fife is one they think they've got a decent chance in. Uh, they think they can break through in Aberdeen for the first time, which would be quite a big deal for them to do that properly. Um, they, they've got a good decent chance at it. Um, I would, I'd say if you're doing a line at 25, I'd definitely say take me over on that. Because there's enough, I can see enough in terms of where they're standing on the map that I can see them being able to break past that line quite easily. Um, maybe not getting beyond thirty, but definitely getting past twenty-five.
0: And though we can't um, the, we can't end the podcast without mentioning the the man, the myth, the legend uh-huh. that is George Galloway. What does he have any part in this election, or is he, for once, uh, taking I a? Do- taking the time
1: taking out. out yeah <laughs> i i'm gonna check i think his party may be standing one candidate i'm trying to think this first so just give me a second to confirm that uh because i don't want to mislead you i don't want to mislead your listeners uh da-da-da-da. yeah they're, they're standing one candidate uh, surprising. Uh, in this election they're standing one candidate uh also standing one candidate selection as well some of the other can- uh, parties we're not talking about the Libertarian Party are standing 19 candidates across Scotland. Uh, the Trade Union Socialist Coalition are standing tw- 16. Uh, the, Independent so- uh, the Independent Scotland Party are standing 12. Uh, Freedom Alliance of UKIP are standing 11. Uh, the Scottish Socialists, if you remember those, they're standing 8. Uh, oh, wow. and there's a f- And there's a few other... Yeah, they're, uh, the Scottish Socialists are still kicking about. Um, there's uh, one councillor uh, for um, the Western Bartonshire Community Party, which is sort of the last electoral remnant of the SSP. Uh, who are still going as an independent, essentially as an independent councillor, and you've got a few other minor nationalist parties, you've got Sovereignty Standing 5, Vanguard, which I think is a unionist party standing 4, you've got the SDP, Western Marshall Community, and the Women's Equality Standing 2, and you've got uh, the unionist party, the communists, which is, I'll get to the communists later because they did something quite funny, uh, the eco-socialist, the rubbish party, Vaults, who are standing a candidate in Polk Shields, that I um, know about because I've, even though I don't live in that ward, I've been receiving targeted ads from them, which is weird, um, the workers' <laughs> party, and the pensioners' party standing, one candidate each. And the reason I mentioned the communists, I'd get back to them, is the communists were meant to be standing seven candidates in this election, but they forgot to fill the paperwork for six of them, <laughs> which is, uh, I, 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 as someone who stood for election, I've had the fear when I filled the papers that I've not done it properly and I'm going to get knocked back. I've never forgot to do it, uh, which... It was quite embarrassing because they had materials printed. They were uh, already campaigning for weeks. Wow, well,
0: which is yeah. quite
1: embarrassing. I, I feel for them. It's, sort of a, it's professional interest. I feel for them. Uh, also, um, one other personal highlight, uh, not because I think i will get elected. I just think it's an interesting uh, story from my old of the world I seen in, 2017, uh, in Anderson City, York Hill. Uh, there is an independent candidate standing uh, by the name of. I need to get his name for me because I'm going to butcher it otherwise. Uh, do it. an independent candidate standing by the name of Ben Rapson who is notable because he is the student president of the Strathclyde University Student Association and that is notable uh, because that ward has the highest population of students anywhere in the country and okay. also because I was under the impression I was under the impression you weren't allowed to do that legally when I tried to stand but that's a uh, fair play to him he's done it um that's it's an interesting words. Uh, it's an interesting award, so that may be worthwhile looking into. I'm sure there'll be other independents that'll have interesting stories behind them as well, as is the nature of these sorts of elections. Mm. But it's there are essentially a thousand local there are essentially a thousand candidates odd that'll get elected. It's about 300 local races. All of them will have their own little quirks. And it's really impossible for me to highlight every single one of them in an election, but there'll definitely be something interesting everywhere you are. Of course, of
0: course. Uh so just in a nutshell, then, what are your sort of bread and butter predictions? and like the overall picture.
1: Overall, S and P still largest party. Um, probably doing more of a consolidation election, seeking growth. So they'll probably fall back a little bit in Glasgow. Probably just fall short in Dundee, but still be largest party, and that will probably be positioned there in across most of the countries. They'll maybe. They may just essentially consolidate what they've got right now, maybe gain a couple here, lose a few there, and it'll be about the same as they are. Mm. I would predict Labour to finish ahead of the Conservatives uh, in this election. I think they're going to finish second. Um, it'll be quite interesting to see where Labour's candidate map ends up being uh, and whether they can start breaking into... Um, if they can start breaking into the sort of places they need to start getting back into to possibly look at regaining Scottish seats for a general election. Um Because as much as Labour might not like to admit it, any path to Labour majority government does run through Scotland in Mm, some way, shape or form. Of course. Uh, The Conservatives uh, will probably not do as bad as some people are thinking, uh, but will probably still fall back into third and probably lose quite a few councillors, especially in the central belt. Uh, The Lib Dems, I think, will still slide a bit. They are um, really in trouble in a lot of places and I don't quite see where they're going to get growth out of it. Um, although some kind of shrinking the growth strategy might be in- might be something they may need to start think- considering at this point, as well the greens I think will break 25. and might be verging towards 30ish on a good day. Uh, that's going to depend on whether they can break out in a lot of um, the suburban sort of councils in the central belt and places like Fife and West Lothian, like out suburbs of Edinburgh. Uh, Alapa, I think might I'll, I'll be charitable say Alapa gets one. I'll be charitable that i think their general secretary gets re-elected and that's about it um and that's they're going to struggle beyond that uh but i'll give them the one i'll give them the benefit of the doubt on it <laughs> uh through there uh the minor parties will probably retain what they have right now um so a British party retain their person uh Western Martinshire retain their one councillor at the moment and Everything else roughly stays about the same as it is uh, beyond that. I don't think any party's going to properly break through. I don't think the family party is going to break out particularly. I don't think uh, any of the minor party standing are going to break through in particular areas. Um, but we'll probably get a good sense of it on the Friday. When it get, um, probably about tenish on the Friday when we start counting. We'll work out quite quickly how that's looking. But I think it'll be... Mostly about where we are right now with Labour, and the, uh, with Labour and the Tories probably having the main fight for a second.
0: Okay. Well, uh, there's uh, there's your tips for today then. So uh, thanks very much, Cameron, for coming on. It was a really great and interesting conversation.
1: Thank you very much. Same to yourself. Look forward to
0: being on again. And uh, thanks to all the listeners for uh, tuning in. Um, we've got uh, one more episode in, coming up, and that's uh, the English local elections. And then we'll have about a month's month or so break until the French uh, legislative elections. So yeah, tune in for uh, the English local elections. So thanks so much, everyone, and uh, speak to you all soon.